This summer, as you know, we've been looking at psalms. We've been considering a few psalms. And, and when the pastor team uh, approached me about preaching uh, a psalm, they gave me a list. They gave me a list and said, here are the psalms we are covering this summer. Uh, which of these would you like to do? Now, that's no small question. And all of a sudden, it's, it's like the NFL draft of psalms. I'm now trying to pick which one to do. And so you might be asking yourself, what does someone like me who is trained in theology and in biblical languages, who has a PhD in New Testament studies, who earns part of his living from teaching scripture at a seminary, what does someone like me do when asked such a question? Simple. I called my mama. I, I, I asked my mom and I gave her a list of these psalms and I asked her opinion of what I should pick. And her answer was uh, very quick. Psalm 103. There's, there's something about Psalm 103. There's something about the, the depth of this psalm, the clarity of it that, that speaks to us, especially in the gray times. So let us read this psalm. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 103, page 595 in your pew Bible. Psalm 103, page 595. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, 
and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. You can see why so many cherish this psalm. In fact, I was remarking uh, with a friend of mine uh, just yesterday as I was discussing this sermon that uh, the worst thing possibly that I could do is keep talking. There's something about this psalm that just calls us to consider, to reflect. Indeed, the structure of the psalm I find very interesting. It begins in the first two verses with a command. And then the next 15 verses, the next 17 verses, are the reasons for that command. David sets out a command to praise, and then he gives all of the grounds for the exhortation. And then he returns and finishes with that command to praise. What this means for you and what this means for me is that this psalm is a muscular psalm. It's an active psalm. Psalm. It's a call to action. We, we are not to leave today after thinking about Psalm 103. We're not to leave here contemplating. We're not to leave here in solemn thought. We're not to leave here simply meditating. We're to leave active. We're to praise. David begins with, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. You know, some psalms are directed to the choir. Some psalms are directed to all of Israel. Some psalms, David will speak to a specific group. But here, notice how personal this is. David is exhorting, is urging his own soul. He's telling his own soul To praise. I I find that very comforting. Because there are times when my soul needs to be urged. There are times when my soul is bland. There are those moments when everyone around me seems to be singing with fervor and gusto. Seems to be singing with the, the full thrust of their soul and I just have nothing. I'm just vanilla. And, and, I, and I find it comforting that David here wants to rouse his own soul. He's commanding his soul and urging it. There's something about our soul, isn't there? Our soul, that, that part of us that, that is irreducibly us. That, that part of us where the profound occur. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between being happy and being joyful in your soul. There's a difference between being sad and grieving in your soul. 
You've had this experience. You know, you know what have I speak to when, when that, that depth that almost is beyond words, when you at your most core are feeling and are engaging something. And this is what This is what David is saying to his own soul, to his own depth, to his own innermost being. Wake up, praise, be roused, O soul, and praise. You know, in those those moments where I am simply neutral in my soul, the question comes, how do you How do you awaken your soul? In this beautiful psalm, in this the psalm of the redeemed, David tells us that what our soul needs is not a new experience. In these moments, what our soul needs is not something fresh. In these moments, what our soul needs is to not have our emotions triggered in a way we hadn't occurred or something novel come across. What our soul needs is the exact opposite. Look what he says in verse 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. When we are bland, when we need the alarm clock to waken up our soul, what we need to do is not find something new. We need to remember To praise the Lord with our soul is to remember. We need to recall that which we know to be true because it is that which we know has occurred. David is telling his own own soul, don't forget, remember. To remember is different, isn't it? than to simply think about or to consider. There's a thickness to remembering. There is a substance to remembering. When we remember something, we are anchoring our mind and our heart and our soul to a reality, to something that is real, to something that is proven, to something that has occurred. To remember is to proclaim the authentic truth of something. Because you know it. You don't know it conceptually. You don't know it through a proof. You don't know it through some sort of logic of argument. You know it because you remember it. And I think this is why so often when we have loved ones whose whose mind begins to fail them, and they start to have trouble remembering why this is so difficult. Because it isn't only that their mental capacities are starting to fail them, but they're starting to lose memories. And there's something sad so sad about the loss of memories because memories provide an anchor to who we are. Remember 
And this is what David does. This is what David begins to do. He begins to remind his soul of the great benefits the Lord has given him. You know, the, 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 the first reminder that he provides is the very fact that God has shown himself. David reminds his soul that there is something to be remembered. In verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. David is, is referring here to that great truth that God desires to be known. God desires to be revealed. In this, this verse 8 you might, be, might sound familiar to many of you because this is the exact phrasing that God uses to describe himself when he revealed himself to Moses. When, when Moses was on the mountain and he was receiving the law and, and the Lord came down in a cloud and the Lord says in, in, in Exodus The Lord says that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. When when the Lord revealed himself to Moses, he revealed his character. David is remembering that God desires to be known. When our souls are bland, we need to remember God desires for us to know him. This is the incarnation, is it not? God desired to be known that the divine became flesh. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He wants to be known. And so when my soul is bland, I need to remember those moments in my life where God revealed himself to me. He wants to be known. You know, and as I think about these moments when God revealed himself to me, I cannot help but remember one of the the great benefits of God's revelation was that he forgives my sins. This is what David says. Some of the most powerful statements about the forgiveness of sins come from Psalm 103. Look at verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Or we pay us according to iniquities. David is remembering that he is forgiven. This is the perfect definition of mercy. If you have always wondered, just how must I define mercy to someone? It's verse 10 of Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Mercy and grace are different, right? Grace is the giving of a gift that you have not earned. Mercy is its cousin. It's the not giving, if you will, of a punishment that you deserve. Mercy and grace are different. They're related, but they're different. Here is mercy, not receiving what we deserve. 
we have a lot of difficulty with mercy. I have a lot of difficulty with mercy. I mean, full mercy. There's, there's something about just the complete reception of undiluted mercy that works against my sense of worth. My, my flesh doesn't want to receive full mercy. My flesh at least wants to rationalize some mercy. I see this all the time. I, I, I see this with my students on occasion, and, and I see this in myself. With my, my students, I've had the uh, opportunity to teach at both Christian and non-Christian institutions, and inevitably there is a student or two who is concerned that they might receive the grade that they have earned. And uh, they, they will come to me, and they will plead with me, and, and at the non-Christian institutions that I've taught at, that usually takes the frame of a break, please give me a break. At the theological schools, they, uh, they, they tend to put scripture into their request. Uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be, please give me mercy. Uh, they, they theologize it. But what's fascinating in almost every one of these occasions, it's never a full plea for mercy. It's, could you please give me a break? I've had a difficult semester. There's been illness. I've had troubles. I've worked really hard but have been unable to meet the demands because of X that has occurred or Y that has occurred. There's always a rationalization. There's always this sense of please give some mercy because there's good reason for it. As a child, I knew this. I knew this well. My, my mother, she, she was on the front line of discipline. She did the ground game, right? 95% of the skirmishes were handled by my mom. Once in a while, it would up a level. And, and my mom would say to me, you wait till your father comes home, and I tell him about this. Now, now that statement was always interesting because there would be dread but hope. Right? There was still time. Right? My, mom, my dad was not aware of it yet. Maybe I could convince my mom between now and when my father returned to not share this bit of information. But it was over when my mom would say, I'm going to call your father at work, and you're going to tell him what you did. Now, my dad was a grocer. He was very busy. You did not call my dad at work. So in those moments where I knew it was over, I would call my dad, and I would fumble around, blubbering, trying to tell my dad what I did, and he was a very efficient man on the phone. I would receive, in about 30 seconds, verdict and sentence. And, and usually the sentence was something to the effect of, when I get home, uh, you will be spanked. That was usually the sentence. So now I'd be waiting for hours for that to occur. <laughs> well, well, one night, my dad returned, and uh, he didn't... He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He came home. He had his dinner. He didn't say anything. I, I took my bath. I got ready for bed. He didn't say anything. And it dawned on me, he'd forgotten. <laughs> he had forgotten. Now, I knew he would eventually remember, so I started as a young boy to hatch the perfect plan. I had decided what better display of virtue, what better display of of, of honor 
than to go to my dad and remind him that he was to punish me. I thought this would surely move my dad to such mercy and compassion, such pride in his air, that he would, he would not discipline me. In fact, I was so convinced the perfect nature of this plan, by the time I had walked to my father, I thought, I will leave here with gifts. I will leave here with laurels of honor. This was the greatest moment of my young life. And I walked to my dad and I, and I said to him, Dad, you were supposed to spank me. And it was at that moment I realized my plan had failed. Because my dad says, oh, thank you, and proceeded to spank the devil out of me. But you see, I thought I could earn mercy. I thought if I showed my dad just how honorable I was that I deserved at least a bit of mercy. We do this. It's so difficult for us to to lay our sins completely before God and just say, mercy. We should be like Isaiah. We should be like Isaiah who, who when in the presence of God said, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. You see, our sins, there's no excuse. There may be reasons why our sins manifest themselves in specific ways, but we stand without excuse. What we need is full mercy. Our sins are our own. Your sins are your own. My sins are my own. We bring nothing. And David tells his soul, and David remembers that his sins have been paid for, that he receives forgiveness. That God does not repay us according to our iniquities. As David says, that they are as far as the east is from the west. It is impossible to look to the east and to look to the west at the same time. God chooses to look to the east and put our sins in the west. Or God chooses to look to the west and put our sins in the east. He does not look at our sins and count them against us. I don't know, I don't know what it meant I don't know the full judgment I should have received, but I see a picture of it in the cross. When I see Christ on the cross because of my sins, when I see the full wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus, when I see his physical suffering, when I see his mental anguish, when I see his social shame, and when I hear the lament of his soul, of the forsaken, I get a picture of what should have occurred to me. I need to remember my sins are counted against me no more. I need to tell my soul this when it is bland and when it slumbers. David also reminds his soul not only of the mercy from the Lord, but of the grace 
David speaks of the Lord's compassion. In verse 3, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desire with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. Further into the psalmist, he's remembering his grace. He speaks of God's love as for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. When, when David reminds his soul of the compassion, he reminds his soul that his, his Lord, his Lord cares. His Lord is giving. His Lord is gracious. His Lord crowns him with compassion. That we wear it as a beautiful jewel. The Lord satisfies our desires with good things. Every good thing comes from the Lord. And when I, when I remember and I consider the good things the Lord has given me, they are amazing. They are wonderful. The best things always come from the Lord. What he gives is good. What the world gives is not. What the world gives is always less. What is uh, the song that was popular uh, a few months ago? Uh, It's a Taylor Swift phrase. Probably didn't expect that. Uh, uh, The world, or she's speaking of love, but I think it applies to the world that it's a nightmare wrapped in a daydream. I love that phrase, by the way. Not really a Taylor Swift fan, but I love that phrase because it captures nightmare wrapped in a daydream. That's what the world will give you every time. It'll look sweet and it'll harm and scare your soul because the world doesn't love you. The world has no compassion for you. But God does. And God loves you and he gives and he gives and he gives because he loves you. As David describes, he loves you, verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. David compares the love and compassion of God to the compassion that we see in a father. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion. There's, there's nothing more beautiful than a father who has compassion. I was very blessed to grow up in a household with a dad who had compassion for me, who was steadfast, who cared for me, who cared for my soul as well as my body. So I saw in my dad, I was very blessed to see my dad, a reflection of the love that God the Father has for his. And I know for, for many, their, their memories and their thoughts of their father are not the same. My wife's natural father, he's deceased now. He left my wife's family when she was but a little girl. The picture of fatherhood there was not the same of steadfast compassion and love. Yet is it, it is even in the 
faulty picture, the, the damaged picture of a father's compassion, that we know that there's something wrong with that. When we see a father who doesn't have compassion, when you see a father who has a child yearning for help and that father wants nothing to do or has better things to do, we know in our heart that is wrong. Because there's something we know about a father that the father is to be compassionate, is to care, and God does. He cares because he, he knows. Look at verse 14. He knows how we are formed. He remembers. Fascinating use of remember there. He remembers that we are dust. God's compassion stems from the fact that he knows how fragile we are. He was there when we were created. He knows that we're dust. He knows our days are momentary and fleeting. You know, God was father before he ever was creator. He was father before he ever was creator. You know, when we, when we consider creation, when we consider the things that has been made, I think it is very possible, indeed I would argue logical, for someone who, even if they have no desire for God, who, who reject Christ, to consider creation and to say there must be an intelligent designer. I think creation... The complexity of creation itself demands this. But creation doesn't speak to God as Father. Creation doesn't make that readily known. That is a gift that God has given to those who fear Him. When when we come to realize that God There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the beauty of the Trinity. That comes with the revelation that God is Father. We are given the Spirit. We are able to cry, Abba, Father. We come to the recognition that God is our Father in a way that no earthly father, even the best, could ever be. And he loves us because he knows we're frail. He knows that we, in our, that we will flourish like a flower, but when the wind blows, our days will be done and no longer remembered. My, uh, my grandmother is aging quite a lot now. Once in a while, I'll bring my sons to her. She loves it. There's four generations in that moment. My grandmother, my father, myself, and my boys. But you know, the fifth generation will not remember her. They may know of her. Someone may tell my grandchildren about her, but they won't remember her. They won't know her. In a handful of generations, each one of us will no longer be known. We are like grass. And into this fragility of our life, the Lord shows us his love and he says, He remains steadfast. Though we waver, though we come and go, he does not. The great gift of God is he says, I am never going to change and I am always going to be here. I take great comfort and I pray and I desire that my sons will follow Christ and their children and their children. And I take great comfort that God will always be there and he'll always be the same. That he is steadfast from the moment to the month, to the year, to the decade, to the millennium. He never changes. He is love 
and graciousness and compassionate, slow to anger. I need to remind my soul this. And when I do, when I remind my soul, when I remember and I don't forget that my sins are forgiven and that my Father loves me, then I can't help but praise him. And when I praise him, I join with all of creation and all of heaven. I join, as the psalmist says here in 19, I join in 19 proclaiming his kingdom. In verse 20, I praise the Lord. You, his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you, his servants, who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. When I remember in my soul, I am joining all that is praising the Lord. Because, brothers and sisters, what has happened in our soul is no mere nicety and is not a trifle. What has happened in our soul is the great act of our king god and we will remember and we will praise him church because we will remember and we will join the hosts our souls will be in concert and we will praise the lord let us remember